If you're an adventurer, there's one place that you absolutely have to shop. There is, because there's this place called Mototomic, and they have the gas can hoodie, which when you put it on, it feels like a hug. And if you're a true adventure rider, you know that some days don't go as planned and you need a hug. But not only the gas can hoodie, Mototomic has other things too. Like what, Cappy? Like beanies, cups, stickers, t-shirts, and probably my favorite dry bag. That orange dry bag is badass. It is. Mototomic.com. Link in the description. So, Chappie, I got a confession to make. Confess to me. I've been talking to our buddy from B-Moto, Paco Pete. You know B-Moto, that shop that does really cool stuff like... Off-road performance engines and suspensions. They even can Cerakote with ceramic finishes. So the outside is just as strong as the inside. Which is awesome and brings me to my confession, Cody Proof Certification. Because Paco Pete told me they're going to take care of my engine and Cody Proof it. That's something that not too many places can say. No, definitely not. I would just suggest go over to bmoto.com and check it out. They've got some pictures of what they do. Bootiche.com. Link in the description of the podcast. Yes, because it's hard to spell, but they do good work. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Throttled Adventures. How are you doing, Chappie? I'm doing well. I'm pretty excited. We have a, a motorcycle rock star in the house today. Yeah, I'm about ready to shit my pants, but we'll leave that part out. <laughs> I'm excited. <laughs> I'll let you introduce him, because I'm I'm over here just... Uh, we have the, the CEO of Moscow Moto, Pete Day, in the house today. Uh, Pete, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you guys for having me on. I'm really stoked for this. We're stoked too, and just glad that you got a minute because I've uh, been following your blog and Instagram a little bit. And man, you guys have been rocking and rolling. You've been busy. Oh, man, we've been busy. It's been a lot of business and a lot of riding. Yeah, this has been like the craziest start to the year. I can't even get over it. It's like we barely had a moment between trips. That's crazy. I'm just glad that you made it alive out of that. What I saw, I saw a video of the start of that race that you were just at. Oh, uh, the Desert 100. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a, it's crazy. wild. They, they put it, that thing is a, a kind of a Northwest. The Desert 100 is like a Northwest institution. You know, it's been this was its 50th anniversary, so it's been around forever. It's the largest off-road motorcycle race in the United States. Uh, Whoa, so they get the largest. Wow. Yeah, I know it's right here in our backyard. What a trip, right? And uh, they have like, I mean, I don't know how many people rode this year, but it's like 1,500 racers or something. And they take them all out there in, in uh, two groups. Like there's 100 people doing the 100 mile and then people doing a 50 mile. And they, and they line up the whole 100 mile in one row just going out. It's like, I don't know how, it must be like a mile or two of riders lined up next to each other. And then you, you get oh, off your bike and you walk back like 40 feet. And they blow a cannon that everybody down that it's so loud, everybody on the line can hear it. And then you got to run to your bike and just jump on it and take off. And like a, a couple miles into the course, there's a choke point where it goes from like wide open desert down to just like a small space. And it's just like, everybody's just, it's ruthless. I mean, you, there's so much dust and you're just seeing <laughs> tires. Like you'll just kind of come out of a dust Carnage. cloud just to see like the back tire of a bike flipping over and someone's head flopping down next to you. Just oh. keep going. <laughs> 
All right. That was my weekend. That's crazy. <laughs> that was your weekend. So you weren't the one flipping upside down, were you? Not this time. Not this time. <laughs> I'm not. A, I'm not a racer. You know. I mean, I came in. I'm a traveler. You know. So like, I'm not a racer. And and so this is only the second time I've ever raced, and it, both times we're in this race. And it it uh. So for me, it's all real new and interesting. You know. Awesome. Yeah, it's quite an experience, man. You said something that kind of rung true with me. You go kind of to people watch and have a ride kind of basically, right? Totally. Yeah. And and to just to experience that part of motorcycling is cool, you know, because it's like so huge, you know, so like a lot of people grow up, grow up in the racing culture and the racing scene. And like, that wasn't uh, my background or what brought me into bikes, but to experience it. And especially like at an event that has so much like legacy and history and just to like, I've, I went to the desert 100 a couple of times without participating in the race. And when I finally participated in the race, it all like clicked in and I felt like, oh, instead of being like, I'm attending this thing that's like other, for other people, I was like, I'm one of the people, you know, You're it's one cool. of like the something peeps. clicked in for me. Yeah, it's great. I mean, I, you know, I probably, my results, I'm sure were like middle of the pack, but it's totally a, a neat bonding experience with everybody. Like even the conversations at the starting line and stuff are just like really cool because everyone's so like excited and not edge and what's going to happen anything could happen you know right and that 100 miles man is a long way and it's not an easy 100 miles it's like hard it's rocks and cl- hill climbs and silt and like you know other people trying to edge you out and it's crazy i mean it's like sounds like air racing cody five and a half hours you know that's, that's yeah. a long time that's to ride a, off road yeah and there's time. not many yeah. breaks <laughs> no we do those in Utah here, some desert races that are about 80, 90. But um, this year, a company out there, B-Moto, was out there. They had a tent and uh, by the beer garden, I think, is where they placed it, probably. <laughs> but uh, they're rebuilding my engine. So they told me next year I'm to come out there and uh, represent them, which, I mean, in that that's race? crazy for them. But it'll be fun. So I hope to be out there next year. and be part awesome. of the madness again i just want to finish with my limbs intact <laughs> that's how i felt too i was like i finished i'm in one piece i won <laughs> and actually our buddy got first place our buddy paul neff from uh Cispus cycle motorcycle training got first place he's um he was nice. in our camp yeah and he he's off to race the dakar he's doing the uh molly moto you know soloing the dakar in saudi oh, arabia yeah Oh, um, so he'll be with, so uh, it would, this is like, Linden he's trying Hoskett. to just do, yeah, exactly. And he's trying to not, not do too much. Uh, you know, he was like a little bit nervous, you know, just like, this is a risky race to do with that on the horizon. But, uh, and then he went on to right. get first place. <laughs> so that's pretty cool. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes if you don't try, it's actually even better, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was pretty stoked for him. Now, I know Ash isn't with us today, but from what I understand, she's kind of more, does she like to hit the gas like in the race situation or is yeah. she people watching too? What? No, she's, she, we always joke about, uh, ABR always be racing. Yeah. If you're riding with Ash, you're racing. You just don't know it, <laughs> but she knows it. <laughs> <laughs> she knows it. <laughs> yeah. She knows it. She's racing. You might not realize until she smokes you and then <laughs> you're like, and you realize you're you're actually racing the whole time. You just weren't aware. She she's like you're just cruising oh, along. Awesome. Like you're like oh look at the view or wow this is cool or look at this pretty little stream. And she's behind you thinking oh I'm gonna take him out on this corner. Oh no I'm gonna take him out on this corner. Okay boom oh I got him. Oh I can he's going <laughs> I down. 
<laughs> and then she's like, Bring. that's awesome. Right past you. <laughs> you have to get some comms in your video if you can. That'd be hilarious. <laughs> yeah, right. Totally. It's a, she can't put it down, man. She's so competitive. Uh, what else you guys got going on? Uh, anything you want to kind of talk about? Well, anything coming up? Or Yeah, for trips, I mean, it's not. It's sort of nonstop for us uh, right now. You know, we we've had um, we've got more help. Like our te- the team has grown, and so which has been really great. And it's um, in awesome. a way, it's allowing us to go a little bit back to the future in the sense that, like, in the beginning, uh, when we first started the business, you know, Andrew was really, we were just really all we were doing was product development, and um, and testing, and interacting with customers on ADV Rider and at events. And then, you know, when we finally got a product and we started selling it, then you introduce like some sales component and some supply chain component and, and some operations and warehousing component and, you know, then IT and logistics and customer service and all these other parts that, you know, make up <laughs> an operating business came into play. And, and those parts as the business grew, got, you know, bigger and bigger. And, but now at, we're sort of, I hope, I think anyway, we're kind of getting to a point where we have people that are better at those things than us in, involved in the company. And that allows us to get back to what we started with, which is the, the writing, the testing, the interacting with other riders and customers and developing new product, you know, and that's, awesome. that's kind of my ideal scenario for as a business owner and personally, you know, so, uh, so that's, what's going on. So you asked what's, you asked what's coming up. The answer is it's been, so we rolled into the year. I was on the California BDR for new year's with some friends came home for a couple of weeks, took off for Africa. I was in Africa riding for about a month, came back for six days and took off for Baja with the rest of the Moscow team. was down in Baja in total for about 10 days, including the trip down and back. And then came back from that for about five days and was off to the Desert 100. Now I'm home for three days. I'm going down to the Alvord Desert in Southeastern Oregon to ride. And then uh, and then our show season is kind of kicked in and I'm off to, I got events in Southern California, Northern California. I, mean, I can't even keep track. The schedule is like booked out. Coming so, to Utah. You're coming uh, to yeah, Utah. I think we are coming to Utah, is. aren't we this year? Yeah. 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 I'll see you there. I, I volunteered for that. <laughs> oh, awesome. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. Cody's representing the BDR. Oh, cool. At that event. Awesome. They said, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll need somebody to represent it. At the Moscow thing, I said the Moscow. Yeah, I'll be there. <laughs> awesome, cool, so, thanks. Well, I'll try to get out but there. They for won't that tell one. me what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> I'll uh, I'll try to be down there for that. Yeah, we so we'll be at as many events as we can this year, and then lots of riding. And that's the plan. That's yeah. awesome. So I, I'm glad you said that. That that kind of leads me into one of the questions that I that I had. The whole how Moscow got you know started. Did you see like the, the something was lacking in the industry or um, you just wanted better stuff for because everybody on the team, it seems like rides. I mean, everybody rides. Are all Everybody on the team rides. Everybody has a bike. And, you know, we were located in a very small town. And I think, um, you know, when we were four or five people, it was one thing to say that. But, you know, now we're over 20 people and it's still true. And I'm always amazed that we seem to find these just like awesome people to join our team who want to be in the gorge and who ride and who are really, really good at their jobs. You know, like you would think in a small town, it's one thing if you're in like the city, you're here in San Francisco or something like that, but like we're in white sand in Washington, you know? So somehow we just have had this great track record of like, I keep thinking, Oh man, it's going to be hard to find somebody to do this job and also loves riding. And then bam, we find somebody. 
this is neat. So, um, it's amazing. And that it contributes to a really interesting culture. I mean, like on this trip we just did in Baja, you know, like, and we had 26 people on the trip and, you know, it's just like, so cool. I mean, every department, every, like, awesome. yeah. And everybody's out there riding together and it's like, we do it for fun, but it's also great for team building and a lot of gear ideas, you know, come out of those trips and stuff, but we don't, we're not structured or organized. That's all like to the extent that happens, it's just like bullshitting around a campfire. It's not like, Oh, now we're going to focus on product. You know, um, what was the question again? I got distracted. Oh, how did, how did Moscow start? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, it, it wasn't uh, all like sort of calculating and analytical like that. Like, Oh, mm, you know, this is like a promising business opportunity. It was more, um, I'd left another job, you know, uh, and was just really burned out. I'd had a rough go there after the recession in 08, 09 and was like totally burned out on what I was doing and finally left. And, um, just decided I needed a break. And so I got on my bike and took off to ride down towards South America and, uh, leaving from here in Oregon, I trucked my bike down to the, down to the, uh, Mexico border and then got on my bike there. I left my truck and just sort of headed off for some indeterminate amount of time. And I was like trying to do as much of the trip off road as possible. And I got down to Honduras and this guy I met Gerardo at the Honduras border, like he was telling me, everybody I talked to was like, oh, you got to skip Honduras. You know, it's just like dangerous and there's not that much going on or whatever, which immediately made me curious about it. You know, and he, because uh, <laughs> everybody was telling me that, you know, they were like, yeah, you can get across it in a couple of days or whatever. And I got to the border and met this guy who lives down there, uh, Gerardo. He has a little um, coffee shop and bar place in uh, Copan, the, uh, where like the ruins are and stuff. And he said, uh, there's this place called the Mosquito Coast. You know, he started telling me about it, which is where our name comes from. Moscow comes from the Mosquito Coast. And it's just like this really oh, nice. uh, kind of jungly area that's like really uh, not a lot of people go through, you know, there's no roads there. It's like kind of like the Darien gap, you know, it's just like a real mysterious kind of area. There's a lot of narco trafficking there. There's some like indigenous communities and it's connected by these little waterways. And he had told me he used to do adventure tours there on boats, but he was like, you know, I think you can get through there with a motorcycle. And he kind of sketched out this like, you know, thing He's like, you go out here to this town and then you ride along and like, it's going to put you out on a beach and you ride down the beach for like 60 miles and you'll hit this like bay and then you got to find a boat. And, and then after that, I'm not sure, but I'm pretty sure you can kind of connect these dots. And so I, I was like, that sounds great. You know, that sounds really interesting. So <laughs> now Pete, were, were you met, yeah. were you okay at this point or, uh, this was for fun or. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is for, this is just like, you're, you know, just looking for interesting things to it. do. You know, I didn't have to be anywhere. So. Uh, so I did it. I headed out there and um, I had this really neat experience in Mosquito Coast. Like it wasn't a ton of riding. It was a lot of like putting my bike in these like motorized canoes and <laughs> taking it out, riding for a little bit and then getting in another boat and going down this waterway. Um, but I kind of got to, I was headed for Nicaragua and I got kind of to the other side of a lot of the waterways in the Mosquito Coast. And there was a, a, a road that like headed out to the Nicaragua border. And then it was like maybe four or 500 miles, I think of dirt. And then it would kind of pop back onto the pavement and then connect, you know, down to Panama on the main kind of transcontinental thoroughfare there. And, um, and it's, I got on that section of road and I was like, so stoked to be back on the bike. And I was just like cruising along. And I, I got, I hit a series of whoops that I didn't see. And I went flying over the handlebars and like flipped with the bike and just had this really terrible crash. And, and I got up and realized that my, my leg was like pretty badly broken and I couldn't get the bike up. It had like landed on this weird angle. I was on a 950 Super Enduro 
and there's nobody around. And it was just like, man, it was weird. And uh, anyway, I, I hung out there for a while because I couldn't move, you know, and uh, collected kind of scuttled around on my butt and just like got all my gear that was scattered back for, down the road for like a ways and kind of got it all to pile and just sat there to see what was going to happen. And um, a couple hours later, a, a, a school teacher came along on a little motorbike and he was like really sketched out. Everybody there is like kind of on edge, you know, a lot of bad stuff happens in the Mosquito Coast. Mm-hmm. Um, he kind of, but finally he realized I was like just an okay dude in trouble or whatever. And he came up and he said he'd just seen a bunch of uh, military guys in a truck coming this way. And sure enough, this truck pulled up with a bunch of uh, Honduran military guys and they were like, you know, what are you doing out here? And do you, do you want to come back with us to our base? And I was like, yeah, you know, definitely, definitely want to come back. It was one of those big <laughs> trucks, like the really big ones with a bunch of dudes in the back with like AK-47s and stuff, right? you know? I have pictures of all this. Like I was taking pictures of my cell phone through the whole oh, thing. Man. So I have pictures of me like alone on the road. With, I looked like I was going to die, you know? <laughs> anyway, they took me back to their base yeah. and I, I had uh, met the Commandante and they, they managed to get the bike back to their base. They had this like little anti-narco base there. And, um, like real small, like they didn't have power. They just had a little generator. They would run for a couple hours at night and, but they did have a landing strip and they didn't have any medical, uh, facilities there. They just had some like field treatment kits and stuff. And, um, so they splinted my leg up with like a two by four and some tape. And I ended up camping for like two nights, three days out there, um, waiting and trying to orchestrate a a flight to get me out of there. And I finally, a little propeller plane came in and landed on the landing strip. Man, when I heard that engine, that airplane's engine like rumbling in. I was like, oh man, thank God. I got on that little plane, <laughs> took me out to to Roatan, which is like a tourist island, you know, where a lot of foreigners go. And um, there was a medical jet. I got had to get a medical jet, um, medevac, you know, I had insurance. So I had got a medevac from Roatan, flew me to Miami. And then I had surgery in Miami, spent like four or five days in the hospital in Miami and then um, caught a commercial flight back to my, my home in, in Washington state. And, uh, so on that trip, so that's, that's where the name comes from mosquito coast. And I left my bike by the way, on the military base. And I went back a year later, retrieve it with our, our first prototype, um, that we'd sewn in the intervening year. And, uh, and our test trip was me taking the prototypes we'd made here in the U S down to this area in mosquito coast, retrieving my bike, riding into Panama, flying home. So mosquito coast kind of played this like really interesting role in the founding of the business, but I was using, um, some other soft bags on that trip. And I was just kind of like, really, I do a lot of other sports also, you know, and uh, like mountain biking, backcountry skiing, backpacking and stuff. And I just felt like the bags that I was using and the bags that were out there for motorized use just weren't uh, like competitive with what I would see on the shelf in REI. You know, like you could go in with the same amount of money, four or 500 bucks and go into REI and leave with this like sick backpack with all these cool features and like hydration and interesting technical fabrics and modern trims and just like a lot of stuff had been thought out. And then for that same amount of money in motorsports, you get this like really basic sort of uh, bag that looked like um, something from like the canoe or kayak industry, you know, 10 years earlier. And so I started talking with a friend of mine in Hood River, who was the senior bag designer at Dekine, and which is a outdoor bag manufacturer. And um, he rides also. And we started brainstorming ideas. And in fact, on that whole trip, as I was riding, I was sending him ideas from the trip. And he was like, we're sending stuff back and forth. And then suddenly, bam, it crashed. And, uh, and I was back here, you know, like 10 days later, <laughs> I'm like, uh, back. And I was like, well, guess what? You know, <laughs> I'm here. So about that bag idea we were talking about, <laughs> you want to, want to try making some prototypes, you know? And so, um, 
so we had the idea to like create a uh a basically like a frame pack you know like a, uh the way that you in backpacks you have like a kind of the traditional floppy kind of rucksack and then you know you had external frame and then internal frame packs that kind of yeah. flowed out of that and the idea was to take that same concept of a frame and apply it to uh to motorcycle bags and that's what led to the backcountry pannier and the backcountry duffel and then ultimately you know you can see what's happened since then so that's how the that's how the company right. started yeah that's one hell of a journey there pete yeah <laughs> yeah it was a trip pretty awesome. i mean if you ask andrew my business partner he'll tell you a slightly different story from his perspective but instead of starting in on the way to panama i would be like well i was sitting in my office at Dakine one day and i got this email <laughs> so you know that's we have pretty kind awesome. of different bounding stories, but it just worked out well. Yeah. Well, I, for one, I'm sure happy. There's many people that are happy that it worked out. Uh, sorry Same. about the leg though. That probably yes. wasn't fun at the time. <laughs> yeah, no, but it just goes to show you, man, you go, you know, it's like, that's the kind of scenario that's like your people, when people picture the stuff that scares them of doing international motorcycle touring, they think of a scenario like that. And like, you know, that was a really bad thing to happen. And then a lot of good things flowed out of it. You know, ironically, this thing that is like the worst thing you could possibly imagine almost happening. Not quite, but you know what I mean? It's like up there. But and, yeah, and ironically, there. it still led to a lot of positive outcomes in the end, you know? That's amazing. And the more I ride and listen to people's stories, I find the same thing. I, I kind of, a mini, mini Pete, I guess. I go do BDRs solo a lot, um, usually just because of scheduling and whatever, but, and I'm not the greatest rider. I, Probably shouldn't be out there, but I do it anyway. Have fun. And uh, like you said, sometimes your battery dies in the middle of nowhere. And oh. you're like, I'm I'm host. And uh, a few hours later, some random person comes by and has cables or something. It's just crazy. I mean, there's good it's crazy. I mean, there. I think that's part of what, what we get out of it. You know, like you're making yourself vulnerable. You're putting yourself in a situation where you're going to be vulnerable. And then, you know, and the world delivers you know, most of the time, not always, but most of the time. And, and that's when the interesting stuff happens. And it's so ironic. Like we all, anybody that's done a bunch of motorcycle trips understands that like the trips that are the most challenging or the trips where something goes wrong or the moments where something goes wrong are always result in the most memorable experiences. And yet we spend all of our time trying to remove any risk of things going wrong from our trips. So like, you know what I mean? Right. It, but it's sort of ironic. Yeah. Like, you know, you're like, well, it always seems like the challenges are the best part. So I'm just going to leave with a flat tire or I'm just going to like put in a, I'm just going to go on a bike that might not make it, but we don't do that. You know what I mean? We try to get our bike dialed and everything dialed and then we go out there, but we know full well, something's going to go wrong. We just don't know what. And then yeah, adventure when it does, always happens. It, yeah. You need it to, you need, we need those challenges. I mean, that's a big part of the motivation is like, you know, going out and having those experiences. I've had a few trips in my life where, things went really, really smoothly. And I got home and I was like, God, it's funny. I mean, that was like technically a great trip, but like totally unmemorable, <laughs> you know? <laughs> totally unmemorable. <laughs> I just yeah. spent two months. I don't remember much of it. <laughs> but yeah, you got to yeah, suffer yeah, a little bit on a trip. You got to suffer a little bit, man. If you don't, it, it like that's actually an important ingredient of the trip. I think you might be the first person I've heard say that outright, but I totally agree. I mean, getting stuck in your tent in the rain for three days and can't get out. That's part of the experience. <laughs> that's part of it, man. You'll remember that, you know? Yeah, Cody has a friend that calls that level three fun. Yeah. Yeah. That's level it's not three fun, fun when you're going through it. It's fun afterwards. Right. Yep. It's fun. Exactly. Fun when you get home to talk about it. 
fun when you get home. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Level level two fun is when he's watching me have a cardiac arrest because I'm trying to follow him through hard enduro and, and he's in shape <laughs> and really good. So that's his enjoyment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's a good segue, Chappie, to my story that I, maybe I'm going to tell Pete here. <laughs> so uh, in 20, 2019, I, I uh, reached out to a guy on YouTube. Tim Collins, cool. forty times yeah. around. No, Tim. And uh, he said, "Meet me, meet me in Idaho. We're going to do this BDR." And I'm like, "So it's off road? Yeah, okay. I didn't know what a BDR was." And so I started a YouTube channel. Went and met Tim. Borrowed a 701 that had Moscow Moto Backcountry Panniers on it and the duffel. This is my first adventure ride ever. I'd been dirt biking a bit, but uh. No sooner do we hit the Idaho BDR, there's a uh, Tim's flipping over because a car ran him off the road. And then uh, I'm following him, and there's this 30 foot tree along that's down alongside the road. And I'm just cruising. It's down, it hits one of the bags, <laughs> hits by Moscow. And uh, if that would have been a hard pannier, I'd have, I'd have been on my butt, probably hurt. So. And what happened? Did, did the bag survive? The bag did make it the rest. Well, yes, I've still got it. <laughs> um, <laughs> Souvenir. I ended up using ties with the inside bag, the dry bag okay. that was in it. And yeah. uh, we mounted it with some straps that we had. And I came back and ended up just uh, ordering because you sold me just the bag. Um, which Hopefully was cool. for, for a... buy the whole set because I was yeah. nervous. I was like, I can't afford these bags. And that's my buddy's bike. And. So I contacted you guys and thank God he helped me out. But <laughs> did we give you a special price on it too? I think we you normally probably do. did. Yeah, we normally do like and a crash I, replacement price. If we didn't, we owe you a few bucks. You guys have more than covered it. You guys have been so great to me. Um, but I fell in love with the bags and adventure riding. But the funny part of the story is I come home, I've been with Tim Collins, right? Like this guy's he's awesome and he's huge on YouTube. So I come home, I've got 50 subscribers on my YouTube channel at the time, and I contact Moto. I'm like, hey, I've got a YouTube channel. <laughs> uh, my buddy Johnny that I was telling you about earlier, he's the guy that's like, follow your dreams. Tells everybody, you know, and big believer. I get home from the trip, I go, Johnny, I'm going to get sponsored by Moscow. And he looks at me, he goes, Cody, nobody get sponsored by moscow <laughs> nobody <laughs> well that was 2019 of june and it's been a mission of mine to you know try and prove him wrong but uh so i nice emailed sponsor story. yeah yeah and spencer i mean you gotta give him a high five for me i email i mean he looks at my channel i got 50 subscribers come on instead of just yeah. being like get lost he's like i like what you're doing or something to that effect keep growing your channel and talk, talk to us in a year or something. Well, that put fire under my belly and the channel's growing and the podcast grows. And, but I just thought it was so cool that Spencer wasn't like, dude, <laughs> take a hike. I mean, like kind of encouraged. And, you know, there's a lot of companies and a lot of people that would just be like, go jump off the cliff. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's so, definitely not our, anyway. not our approach, man. Yeah. Yeah. Good. I'm glad Spencer's awesome. He's done such a great job. Uh, so he manages our ADB rider too. The gear dude. Check him out. Yeah, he's a cool yeah, guy. Yeah, we've uh 
with the the COVID and the supply chain issues and whatnot, I was trying last year to get the a Reckless 80 for the life of me. And it just like, I would be at work when you guys got some in, they'd sell out. So like <laughs> any interactions I've had with Moscow, the, the customer service you have is just top notch. I've most definitely, it, you'd be hard pressed to find another company at your stature that replies as quickly and, you know, cares for the customer. You know, it just, I feel like, um, I'm so important to Moscow when I get my communications back. So we have to applaud you for, for that. Thanks. And you are important to Moscow. I mean, you know, the thing is like with the line between us, the line between like Moscow team and customers is like, very blurry you know what i mean like we're customers also you know everybody on our team uses right. the gear like every single person you'll talk to on our customer service team uses the gear like they understand what it feels like to have an issue you know what i mean so like they that and that so i think that's a big part of it you know like we're we're out there using it too i mean we were all just riding together in baja you know the whole customer service team yeah. and like they're out there and you know we break straps we break buckles you know we crash we take cactuses through our dry bags. Like we, we know what that feels like in the middle of the trip. And like, especially in the middle of the trip in the middle of Africa or the middle of South America, you know, where it's like, you're like, Oh man, how am I even going to do this? Like when that happens, we've been over backwards, like get parts to weird places and countries in the world. Cause like, you know, it's a big deal, man. When you got an issue with your bag somewhere out in the middle of nowhere yeah. or on in the middle of a, of a, right. of a big trip, you know, it's not like we got a bunch of dealers, you know, and all these, all these uh, countries are crossing. So we've, we've jumped through some crazy hoops to get parts and pieces and replacement stuff to people out in the world, you know? Now, is, is that kind of fun for you to like try and make that happen sometimes? Oh yeah, totally. Like to solve yeah, that cause problem it's like, and help out I mean, it's a total, it costs it a horrendous you. amount of money. Yeah. It costs a ton of money, but it's like, it doesn't happen enough that it adds up to a problem. You know what I mean? So like, we'll, we'll spend crazy right. amounts of money to get stuff to somebody somewhere. Just because like, just so the trip goes on, man. Cause like, that's what you need when yeah. you're actually out there and you're on a tight budget and you, and you know, you've got some issue or whatever, like, you know, shipping and duties and all this stuff. It's really a pain in some of these countries. Right. But you make a customer for life by, you know, continuing their trip. So you're going to, you're going to make that money back hopefully with new products and they're going to keep coming back because yeah. Maybe you know, like, but it like Cody and I, it's <laughs> like, you know, maybe, but they make such thing. good gear. They might not have to come back until there's a new model. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah, true. And we, too. It is also, true. I just don't even think about it that way. To be honest, like, I just don't even think about it that way. Yeah. And that's what I love. You're just thinking I mean, more you about know the what trip. it's like to be that guy. I need my yeah. bag. It's uh so you know what it's like. Yeah. And that's, that's one thing I love. Yeah. And just got to go. Absolutely. I, I still have the version one uh, back countries been all over. Nice. I've been on at least parts of five BDRs still going strong. I might have a little bit of um, liquid nails in one of them, but I mean, I abuse them. So I'm going to say the new term that they are <laughs> Cody proof. Okay. But they're Cody. Yes. I'm rough. Awesome. <laughs> yes. So yeah. Stamp. Cody <laughs> is, is a torture tester. It sounds like it. <laughs> I don't is. mean to, but I'm not gentle. So, but yeah, yeah great well, I'm gear. glad to hear that. Yeah. Glad those and, are still uh, going. We see there's still a lot of V1s out there. Yeah. We've made a lot of improvements, obviously, since V1, you know, like 
Um, so when you are ready to upgrade, you know, you'll step into something where we've, we've, uh, addressed and fixed a lot of things. You know, one of the things about selling direct, you know, we don't have dealers, we don't have distributors. So like, it's just, it's basically, uh, the, the rider, us and the factory, that's it. You know? So like when we put something out there, we get feedback, like straight to the face immediately. Like there's no process of like filtering through to like a salesman, to a dealer, to a distributor, eventually back to us. I mean, it's like next day the phone rings, you know? So we absorb we got raw all feedback. that raw feedback, like an immediate, you know, and, uh, and on ADV rider and on social, and we take that stuff really seriously. You know, we're listening, always trying to make it better, you know, and I, you might, the only frustration is that it takes a long time, you know, and especially now with the lead times being so long, it's like, I wish I, I wish I could just like want to change something and have our, all of our existing inventory, have that change the next day, <laughs> but it's like, you can't do it. You know, it's like you, you got to go through this process of like back and forth to the factory and prototypes and like all that takes months. And then you place an order and then, you know, they got to order all the materials and make it. And then now with the shipping being so delayed, it's crazy. Sometimes they give you the wrong color zippers on jackets. Oh God. Don't even get me started on that. <laughs> that was awesome. I, mean, yeah, I, I love that you shared that with everyone. I love that you just yeah. said, hey, this is what happened. You can buy a FUBAR or whatever you called it. It was awesome. Was yeah, like, the FUBASILIS. That was cousin. awesome. <laughs> Moscow's yeah, the was, only customer. Was... Just say it. I loved it. <laughs> that was pretty funny. That was, I, I, do you know that sold? That was the first uh, colorway to sell out of that jacket. Like, we, we were like, oh no, what are we going to do with these? And then we put them up there. We put them up and it sold out before any other colorway that season. You know, this is the, we probably got a bunch of jackets for anybody that's not aware. We got a bunch of jackets where we'd, we'd had a specking miscommunication with the factory and they came in with, it was a blue jacket with orange zippers and uh, they were supposed to be black. So they really, <laughs> it actually didn't look that bad. You know, we probably no. could have slapped it. You know, we could have pretended we did it on purpose, but we didn't. We put it out there. Hey, we screwed up and we put it at a discount and it sold out really fast. I was, I was really amazed with that. They're a yeah. collector's item now. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Special edition. Yeah. 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 It turned out to be not so bad. But boy, when I saw that jacket, I was like, oh no. I mean, it was a lot of money, man. That, that, the basilisk yeah. is, is, a, is a very expensive jacket to make, you know? Yeah. You'd be, you'd be amazed at what oh, the I, art I bet. factory cost is on that jacket. And, you know, we have, I have one and I can say that uh, I've owned Alpine stars. I've got a Revit jacket. Um, that basilisk is, I mean, that's my favorite jacket. I, I love it. Oh, that's awesome. Thanks for saying that. It's, I love it too. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it, it's waterproof. It's adjustable. Um, and it looks Cody good. and I don't, yeah, we don't throw praise around, um, just to, to do it. I mean, that's, I've got a bunch of Bosco gear, you know, the tank bags, the reckless 80, the basilisk Cody's got. What, a reckless 80 you've got the he's the one that got me into the the nomax you've actually got a nomad yeah i think i got oh, yeah. one of the last nomads i'm pretty proud of that yeah old school <laughs> yeah god that was so great that was such a funny situation talking about the gear um yeah. noticed that uh there's no uh a women's line but when we see the the instagram posts and the blog posts and social media from moscow all of the Moscow ladies are wearing Moscow gear. Is that? Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. You know, we, the, um, 
I mean, obviously the gears like got a lot of adjustability and we got a pretty good size range, but um, yeah, the question of like women's gear and are we going to do it and why don't we do it like comes up constantly. And, uh, um, and it's funny cause like we uh, probably half our team is female, almost half, which is like just worked out that way. That's not like intentional, but because the sport is so like heavily slanted towards a male uh, audience, you know, it's like amazing that we've managed to end up with a company making gear that's half female and all of them ride. Many of them are really badass riders. So obviously like the question of women's gear and when to do it and whether to do it is like constantly comes up with us. It comes up at events. It comes up at shows with customers. It comes up internally with our own team. Um, and you know, the, the answer to why we don't have dedicated women's gear right now, it was mainly a business one. Um, you know, we're still pretty new apparel is like, you know, we just got, we just started selling apparel. I think we're on our third or fourth season. I'm losing count Fourth must be fourth season coming up. But, and we were working on apparel for probably five years before we actually introduced the first one. So we've been working on apparel for eight years, but we're still the oh, wow. new kid on the block. And it's just a, it's a tough nut to crack. Like it, you, it's really just from the factories, from the material suppliers, from the competitors. Like it's, uh, you know, you're, you're trying to take a fortified hill, if you know what I mean. And, um, it, yeah. and so, uh, you know, and you get to move one chess piece a year. You know, that's the deal. Like if it's a chess game, you get one chess piece a year and it's your big, you know, moment. It's not like you are constantly getting deliveries and reordering and shit throughout the year. It's like you sort of get to, this is our line. And then you put it out there and you collect the feedback and you make your tweaks. And then one year later, you're like, and here it is again. And so it takes a long time. And a lot of the, the companies in the industry have been there for a while. They've been playing that game for a long time. So getting back to the question of women's gear, like it's very much on our minds. Like, uh, but right. You know, women are definitely a minority in this particular market. Like it's a small part of the market. Right. And we're, when you're starting out, uh, you got to think about factory minimum orders, you know, and fact, and the factory minimum orders are based on the style. And so we're still at a point where we're introducing a lot of new styles and, you know, finally, like a lot of our better selling styles are starting to get into a zone where, you know, factory MOQs are, we're not worried about those anymore, but a lot of the new stuff, we're always thinking about MOQs. And so that's kind of where we're at with it. So it's like for us, the, the, the issue of women's gear is like mainly a size and shape thing. You know, I think when we talk about women's gear, like we don't really talk about so much that like that we would create this completely different model. In fact, one of the things we've talked about is just thinking of women almost as a sizing thing. So it'd be like shape and size, but it would have the same colors, same exact features as the men's gear, you know, cause like, I think a lot of times when I talk to women, it's like, they feel like their needs are really the same as the guys in terms of uh, what they, you know, what they're looking for in gear. They don't necessarily want to be catered will, to with a special they colorway. They will steal your some, Moscow pants. <laughs> they will steal They'll your steal. Moscow pants. <laughs> your wife, they, so, you know, maybe my oh, wife might steal my Moscow pants. <laughs> I got gotcha. you. So, there's, there's nothing so, wrong with that. Um, it works great. So we, I, I would love to see us introduce, like, for example, the basilisk. And it's still the basilisk. It's just in a women's shape and women's size, you know, but it's the same jacket. It's right. not like, oh, here's the women's basilisk and it's in like some feminine color. It's like, you know. Which no, they hate. Yeah. yeah some. My wife said no life. pink. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I was surprised. So my we would love to do women's I'm gear. Riding. No pink. We're really interested <laughs> in it. It's a rapidly growing part of the market. You know, half our team is female. It's coming. But we have to get to a point where our power program is at a certain level of development before we start hassling our factories to be like, okay, 
hey, can we break MOQ and try a couple things? Or like, are we going to, you know, tackle this market that's like, uh, represents, you know, a growing but still relatively small percentage of the total market and how to and right. still hit what the factory needs from us in terms of volume. That's the juggling act. And especially still having to compete with companies like Revit and Climb who have been doing it for 20, 30 years. Totally. There's and no I know that women are, uh, are um, you know, not always like I hear like those companies are trying real hard. They're making a real like doing a really good job of uh, like, I don't want to say I know everybody's got their own opinions. You know, someone will hear me say, hey, these guys are doing a great job of women's gear. And they'll be like, but it doesn't fit me totally understand that but like in the aggregate big picture i look at what those guys are doing revit and climb and i'm like man they're doing they're trying hard they're they're doing a, what i would consider to be a pretty kick-ass job of it um so there's a some stiff competition and some folks that have put a lot very smart folks that have put a lot of hard thought into doing it right and uh you know we'll throw our hat in the ring too at some point um but uh but you know those guys are making a good go of it right now from my perspective you know Oh, that's, that's good. Yeah, so I basically, so. just don't you you don't want to put the cart before the horse right now. Right? Yeah, is, we'll get there. Know. You know, we gotta we gotta just like keep put one foot in front of the other. And you know, I think that women's gear is a, a total inevitability for us. It is definitely happening. It's just a question of when. The numbers have to have to make sense, but it'll happen. There you go. It'll happen. So don't ask him at the next. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Don't ask him at the next meeting because he just Yeah, no, go ahead and ask. Go ahead and ask. I mean, if you're go interested in women's ask. gear, come up and hassle me. He'll be my guest yeah. for sure. Ask. I, I was so, – I'm surprised by the answer. I, I, I figured you were going to say something along the lines of, you know, because of the adjustability and because I see all of the girls wearing, like, the woodsman's pants and stuff like that that, you know – for dirt riders, the special cut really doesn't matter. Yeah. It's all about I mean, I, the protection and, you know, that sort of thing. There's some truth to that. You know, I mean, there, are you know, women come in. I mean, I think if you're interested in our line and you're female, you know, come try something on and like, just, you know, and if it, uh, it we're often amazed at what fits, you know, and, uh, but if it doesn't fit, I'm sorry. And we're, 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 we do want to do women's gear eventually, you know, but if it does, right. I mean, you can see the choices that a lot of the women on our team make, you know, and they're wearing some of our gear and sometimes some of other people's gear. And that's fine. You know? Um, but, uh, I do find like particular, like the basilisk and the woodsman pant, uh, seem to do pretty well with women. The basilisk has that, uh, neat, the side flaps, you know, on the jacket, which uh, allows you to not yep. only change the size of it, but also kind of the shape, which is nice. The harder thing with women I found, um, cause I fit a lot of women at events, you know, is actually armor. Mm -hmm. It's hard to find good armor for women. Really? Yeah, separate body really? armor. Yeah, well, I think that'll change. I never in even the future. thought of that. There's, every time I go out, there's It'll a girl rider that's kicking my butt. So, yeah, <laughs> I mean, they're, they're going, not that, that that's hard, but I was behind a lady in the Desert 100 for a while last weekend, and I kept I kept like trying to catch her. <laughs> I couldn't, man. I was like, I would get up close, and I was like, oh, I'm gonna take her, right? and then she's just like gone. <laughs> I never caught her. She definitely finished ahead of me. You never caught her? I was like awesome. in the middle of the race, somewhere in the blurry middle of the race. I remember for, for a good 20 minutes, I must have been kind of around her. And then, you know, then she was gone. Those those are my oh, favorite parts of the race when you're close. Like, because at that point, I'm, I'm going faster than I probably would normally. Because you just got yeah. the mission, right? You just want to get past this one. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's, it's like a mini race fun. within the race. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Those are the wins I get out of races. So, 
Yeah. Yeah. You check off each lap mentally. Okay. I made it this far. Made it this far. I haven't eaten the handlebars yet. That's a win. <laughs> yes. Totally. I had a pretty good crash. They could have taken me out last weekend. I was really happy it didn't. We're happy too. You've got a lot going on, Pete. <laughs> yes. Oh man, I would have been so bummed. Was, yeah, I can't. I really need to be careful this year. Got a lot of riding. Was going. that in Baja? What's that? Was it in Baja the, your crash or? Oh no, the de- that was at the Desert One Hundred race uh, oh, just last weekend in in Washington. Yeah, it's out in the desert in eastern Washington. I'm sure I had a few crashes. Yeah, in Washington. There is a desert in Washington. Right. Exactly. When you think of the Northwest, you think of like rain and mountains and coast and stuff and. But uh, we actually yeah green yeah over half the state's desert you know the east side of the mountains Oregon too yeah Oregon's part of the Great Basin like the southeastern corner of Oregon is part of the same Great Basin landscape that extends all the way down to like Death Valley you know wow being Death Valley out there coming week (laughs) yes pretty cool area (laughs) but yeah you you live in a beautiful area of the country I'm not sure exactly where you are but I I used to live in Spokane Washington and we've got friends from Oregon down through washington and seattle so i mean it's beautiful it's neat you know uh what was it um icon motorsports you know icon uh they're based in in portland and they did a movie like uh probably uh, eight or nine years ago that was like these two it's kind of a joke but it's like these two guys go out you know they make some really cool videos icon and they did this one with the two guys like and it was like they were doing an around the world trip you know, like they were racing around the world on their bikes, but actually they're in Oregon the whole time. So they're like in snow and then they're in sand dunes and then they're like, <laughs> you know, in the desert and going down the beach. And it, it looked like, you know, they had traveled all the way around the world, but actually the whole thing was shot in Oregon. You know, that's awesome. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah. We got a lot of different landscapes and a lot of really, really cool riding up here. That's Utah crazy. as well. You can maybe do yeah, that. Yeah, Utah too. Yeah. Yeah, Utah. I mean, darn like God, Moab and that area. Utah's got Utah's got some of the best riding in in North America. I, th- I think personally. Wow, yeah, it's incredible. And Pete's it just never been gets old, man. Some riding, so that's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. So I really haven't touched on it. How was your Africa trip? Oh, Africa was great, man. It was that was a really interesting trip. You know, we um we've done a bunch of trips in Africa, uh, and. Each one it, it has, was really unique, uh, and this one was no exception to that. Um, we were in West Africa in Siberia, or sorry, Siberia. It's funny because it's Sierra Leone and Liberia, which is kind of you could easily put Liberia. together to make Siberia. Yeah. <laughs> we were in Liberia yeah. and Sierra Leone, <laughs> and it, it was uh, it was so random. You know, we were supposed to be in in um, Bhutan, and and the, but the trip got canceled because of COVID, and I was back east in Philadelphia. Uh-huh like uh, about three or four weeks before we were supposed to go to Bhutan. And we just, it hadn't been officially canceled yet, but we were like pretty sure it was going to get canceled because we were watching what was happening with Bhutan in the news. And uh, I got a like a 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. cab ride from my parents' house in Philadelphia to the airport. And it was from a, an Uber driver. It was an Uber, Uber ride. The Uber driver was Liberian. And on the drive to the airport, he, I, he's, he mentioned he was from Liberia. And I started asking him about Liberia and Sierra Leone. And, and, uh, he told me all about it. And I came back from that flight and I was like, Ash, if Bhutan gets canceled, what do you think about going to Liberia? <laughs> she was like, I don't know anything about it. And so we got on the internet and started Googling <laughs> and we're like, hell yeah, let's do this, man. And, and then sure enough, like a week later it got canceled and we just booked our t- tickets to Liberia. And two weeks later we were there. <laughs> that's how it happened. That's, and it was great. That's pretty awesome. awesome. Oh, it was so cool. 
we we got a couple of little uh, 125 cc four stroke bikes that are um, Chinese made copies of the Honda XL125. So we just bought them in Liberia. They're so cheap. You know, we, you can get bikes there for like 900 bucks, brand new. We got these bikes for $1,800, which is really wow. expensive um, by local standards, but they were like dual, proper dual sports. You know, they had knobby tires and high ground clearance. And, and uh, yeah, we rode them a couple thousand miles around Liberia and Sierra Leone, um, which is an awesome experience. You know, a lot of dirt and you know, those countries have had a really tough go. Like last time I was in West Africa, I was in Ghana. I did a trip in Ghana, a similar trip, bought a couple cheap bikes in Ghana with a buddy. We did a couple thousand mile trips through like Ghana, Togo, and uh, Ivory Coast, Cote d'Ivoire. And um, and at that time, the the Sierra Leone and Liberia were just kind of coming out of their Ebola crisis, you know? And I remember thinking to myself like, God, between the brutal civil war and then Ebola, you know, I don't know if I'll ever make it to those countries. And then when I had the ride with that Uber driver and he was like, no, man, things are chill, you know, like, it's cool there. You got to go check it out. And they got neat, nice beaches and people are super friendly and it's pretty safe. And um, I was like, wow, okay, that's not what I pictured. And that's what we started Googling. And then it turned, you know, of course it turns out he was totally right. What I've seen from your, your posts, the, the people seemed like one of the best parts of your trip. I mean, Ashley, so she always had, a gaggle of kids around her yeah <laughs> the kids go crazy i mean they have out candy and stuff they, we're not handing out candy i mean the kids are just curious you know they the uh they haven't had a lot of visitors in a long time i mean you, you had you had this horrible civil war you know like in both those countries which is like came to kind of define everything the west thinks of when it thinks of like worst war ever you know like just really horrendous atrocities and it went on for a long time and that kind of set its like reputation in the world. But the war ended 20 years ago, but that's still the reputation that's out there. And then in, in, uh, and then Ebola hit you know, just as it was starting to recover, Ebola came through and bam, you know, everybody's uh, feelings about that area got reset. And then they were just starting to pull out of that. And then COVID comes along, you know, so they've had a really tough go. And so they haven't had a lot of foreign visitors. So when you pull into some on a bike into some of these out of the way, communities on like small rural dirt roads that like just don't get visitors like they haven't had a foreign visitor maybe for anybody under the maybe age of 30 the, maybe ever in the kids life yeah definitely oh, not wow. the kids and but also for someone an adult in their 20s might ha, had very few if any interactions with foreigners you know um aside from other west africans so you can have these really neat we had a lot of just really neat interactions like that where it was like, cause we're of course like so excited to be there and so interested in every little thing that people are doing and what they're eating and how, the, what their motorcycles are like and what their houses are like, you know, we're so curious, but they're just as curious about us. So that makes for a really nice, you know, they're, they're taking pictures with their cell phone. We're taking pictures with our cell phone. Everybody's taking pictures, you know, they're all excited <laughs> and they're asking about our stuff and we're asking about their stuff. And, you know, we've like set up camp one night in this little, village like we just pulled off on the side of the road and we're like hey can we sleep here and they let us set up camp and like you know for us it's really neat because it's just like all these little you know houses and mud huts and stuff and and then they came out they pulled out like wooden benches and chairs and like set up in a semicircle and, and like we must have had 30 and people what? 35 people sitting there watching us they brought out snacks and drinks and they just sat there and watched us set up our tents and <laughs> it was awesome i think i you know i think i called it brought out awesome. that, like they yeah, must have they been, brought uh, out a little radio. Strange, but cool. cool. Yeah, yeah, it was and, cool. And you get that all over Africa. It just was like uh, particularly um, uh, intense here because it's been 
because of the lack of visitors, you know, for so long. Now, you managed to uh, find a mechanic out there, didn't you? Oh, there's mechanics in every little town, man. Yeah. The yeah, little there's, kid? There's mechanics. Yeah. The, <laughs> the little the, kid fixing the He's talking about the event. taillight. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the taillight. I mean, the... Uh, that was awesome. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, that's not uncommon, you know, to see, like, you've got several different uh, age groups, like, at a mechanic shop like that. So there'll be sort of an older guy, and it's his shop and his tools. And then, you know, there's two to three age tiers below him all sort of training and doing the simple stuff like changing oil and, you know, taking parts off and putting them back on. And then he'll do the, the heavy lifting. He's got the, the apprentices teaching him the ways. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, that's one of the great things, you know, so this, this model of motorcycle travel where you drop into some country you want to visit and you buy an inexpensive bike and then sell it at the end uh, is something that we've now done a lot. And I, I, I think it's like really an awesome way to travel. And you can do it in almost any developing country in the world because these Indian and Chinese motorcycle manufacturers are like shipping zillions of bikes into these countries. And you can buy them brand new for very little. And, you know, 15 years ago, the quality was really poor. But now the quality is like, I mean, man, these things, like they're not fancy. It's not like hydraulic everything and whatnot, you know, disc brakes. and But they're, they're simple. They're like a, a bike from you would have bought here, you know, 30 years ago, but they're like, they run forever with very little maintenance and they're designed to, you know, people put their whole families on them and they never change the oil and they strap pigs to the back and like (laughs) ride halfway across the country on these brutal dirt roads and back. And there's mechanics in every little village and the parts are interchangeable between the different models. So if you, you can have like a clutch go out or a piston seize or any of that kind of stuff, and you'll be back on the road in a couple of hours. I mean, you barely have time to go get lunch and a cold soda and like, Yeah, that's it's, really it's awesome. Cool. Like They're, I'd never thought of that. Just pop in and buy. It's probably cheaper than shipping your bike down to wherever too. A lot. A lot oh, it's of time, way right? cheaper, and it's a neat experience. You know, you, we ride in more in street clothes. We don't wear like a big fancy suit. You know, we just because our speeds are slow and we're on the same bikes as the locals, and you just kind of meander. It's like being on a motorized bicycle. You know, you just kind of take lots of stops, and a big day for us might be a hundred miles or one hundred ten miles. You know. And you just, the speed slower wow. and you stay on the small roads and, and, uh, and you know, you're a lot more approachable because you're on the same bike as everybody else. So you're, you're not, uh, right. you don't look like some astronaut that just dropped in from outer space, you know? Yeah. Less likely to draw is too much attention. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or you get good attention. You know, people are just like, what are you doing here? You know, you get all kinds of great invitations to stay with people or eat with people <laughs> or, you know, it's neat. How did you uh how did you get into motorcycles? Just curious. Or did they get into you? Whatever. <laughs> Is it a family like thing or did me. you just were you a rebellious yeah, no. rebellious teen? Uh, actually what? it was a family thing. Uh my it's funny, my first rides on a bike were with my dad, you know, in the city though. And uh my dad had a couple of bikes. He had a BMW at one point. Um and then also mopeds. I got I remember with I think the first two wheeled vehicle I ever rode was a moped. But it wasn't dirt riding. No. <laughs> oh well. And then, yeah, I was kind of a, uh, had a lot of issues as a kid, man. I was like, you know, my childhood was an angsty experience for me. And I, I got in some trouble in high school and got, uh, you know, suspended a lot and then eventually got expelled from school in ninth grade. Didn't, and so I didn't finish my ninth grade. And um, I got sent to a reform school up in Maine. So I had to repeat the ninth grade in Ooh. reform school after getting expelled from a normal school. And, uh, and I, and I had such a miserable experience in reform school that I, after that, I ran away from home. 
I spent about a year and a half. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. It was a trip, man. I was, I was young. I was 15. So I'd, I'd been, I'd done two ninth grade years at that point, you know, one incomplete and one that I completed. And so I dropped out after ninth grade and went, uh, out traveling. You know, at that time I was like really into the like idea of like on the road, like Jack Kerouac, Dharma bums, you know, like go out and see the country and hitchhike around. Mm -hmm. So I hitchhiked back and forth across the country. I went to Grateful Dead shows. I worked a bunch of odd jobs like fucking hay and worked brand bumper cars and state fair and did like all this weird day labor stuff, painted fences and slept under highway bridges and wow. um, learned to ride freight trains. Um, I rode freight trains back and forth. I was, well, mainly I was freight trains ask around the if West. You were US. hopping trains. Yeah. yeah. So I learned to hop trains, you know, which is not so easy hopping trains. Like it is not no. like you just, you know, take your duffel bag and it's jump not. on some random box car. It's like, there's a, it's complicated. My wife's a nurse. One of her doctor's kids was hopping one and missed it and lost one of her legs. So it's, I mean, it's no joke. <laughs> it's <laughs> dangerous, man. Mark. <laughs> yeah. You see people working in the missions and stuff along the track, sometimes without legs had the same story, you know? I, uh, so anyway, that was kind of 15 to 17. And I, I, uh, that, you know, that was a really awesome experience, but I mean, it was a lot of challenges obviously too it was like not all just like rosy and fun but it was like um pretty intense for a kid you know and uh eventually i ended up back in school and like now i have a, a college degree and a master's degree and stuff like that so i didn't just like totally abandon but i still don't have a high school diploma which is funny i have a master's <laughs> degree but no, no high <laughs> school diploma. yeah i have a um, master's but no i high school. i have a master's but i don't have a ged and i don't have a high school diploma it's funny Great. Yeah, that's crazy. Nowadays, I don't think you'd be able to get into uh, college without some form of GED or diploma. Yeah, it's a little weird. I mean, it was weird then, too. That's a whole nother story. I could tell you how that the mechanics of that. It's interesting, but that's a whole nother story. Um, the uh, So anyway, getting back to motorcycles. So I came back from that experience and I was in college and I, I was trying to make money. So I went up, I was working in the fish canneries up in Alaska, like doing the fish processing you know? Oh, wow. Yeah. So I'd go up there in the summers and, and, uh, I did that for three years. And, but the first year I went up there, I hitchhiked up, uh, from Colorado and, uh, wasn't planning to work in the canneries, but I ended up in the canneries cause I met some girls that were going to work at a cannery and I ran out of money. I thought I was going to stretch my little bit of money like all summer, but then I got there and I was <laughs> broke already. And they were like, Oh, you get these jobs, you know? So I went and did that. And, uh, I came back from that trip and I had, had some, made some money, you know, that summer in the canneries. And there was, I was in Colorado and there was like a, I was driving with a buddy of mine and there was a motorcycle, like an old Honda CB 350 with a sign on it. Sorry, CB 550 with a sign on it for $350, just a big cardboard sign with $350 written in like big letters with a dollar sign. They weren't, I don't think they were quite as sought after. This is like, we're talking like, what, like early nineties right. here. So, you know, it wasn't like they didn't have the collector status they have today. And, uh, I was it like, shit, that affordable. sounds great. I didn't have a car <laughs> at that point. I don't even know if I had a driver. I must have had a driver's license, but not a car. Um, so I bought that. And that was the beginning for me of just like, I, that was, I basically have not, definitely haven't hopped a freight train and have barely hitchhiked since I got that bike. I mean, that just filled that gap completely. You know, I would, instead of being at the, you know, the sketchiness of hitchhiking or the kind of the, all the challenges of train riding it was like the motorcycle. I was in charge of my own schedule. I could go where I wanted, when I wanted, I could get into places. I wasn't limited by the highways and the train tracks. I could go up in the mountains. I could go anywhere. And so 
I just used it to like, I can't, I can't thought it. I mean, I have pictures of camping off that early bike on dirt roads and stuff, you know, it's really funny. And, uh, so, freedom. Yeah, <laughs> totally. I mean, you guys know, everybody knows who rides. It's incredible yep. that feeling, you know, when you first experience it. And, uh, so something clicked for me and, but then a big leap forward with that was, uh, was when I did my first international trip, you know, I started getting into international travel and backpacking and, uh, I was on, I was backpacking in Southeast Asia and I was just kind of like fed up with the youth hostels and like, just like all the, you know, you get, take these buses and you're surrounded by other foreigners and you pop off and you get into a hostel and then you're surrounded by other foreigners. And then they're like, what do you, what do we even do here? And then they're like, oh, here, t- try some of our tours. You know, here's a tour. You can go see a cave you can go see a waterfall. I was like, this is not what I get excited about with travel. You know, I want to get away from all that stuff. Right. And these two guys were like, you know, you can buy a motorcycle here for like 600 bucks. I was like, what? <laughs> really? This is in uh, Hanoi in Northern Vietnam. I was like, no shit. And I was actually on one of these little backpacker tours when I met the guys that told me that. And as soon as I got back that night or the next night, I started talking to the guy at the hotel I was staying at. Like, so can I really get a motorcycle for a couple hundred bucks? And he's like, oh, you want a motorcycle? And within like an hour, there were people were bringing motorcycles by and, you know, a couple of them were total, totally clapped out. But one came and I was like, all right, I'll take that one. And I bought it and headed off and had this amazing adventure in Southeast Asia. And, you know, that... I could draw a straight line from that to where I am today. Yeah. (laughs) That's pretty awesome. So it sounds like you took the crash course and, um, you know, a lot of us, my first solo camp, I'll never forget my first time sleeping alone in like even like a tent and sounds like you Pete just went kind of full force into it and got that right. Ripped that bandaid off. And (laughs) (laughs) yeah, I mean, those, that time when I was, I mean, when I was a kid, I would have loved to have had a tent when those that year and a half I was out traveling, man, I was sleeping on street corners and, and, uh, you know, it, I love dirtbag travel. I mean, what's funny is like, you know, dirtbag travel is like totally out of favor right now. You know, I, I've been getting active on social media and like, uh, I was like on Instagram the other day, this is all quite new for me. I've been on Facebook forever, but I just started getting active on Instagram. Like, couple of um, like five, six months ago. And I was like, God, what else is on here for travel? And I started looking up hashtags and stuff. And it's all this like, man, like infinity pools and like model looking people at like five-star hotels and like all like buffets and like tropical turquoise water. And I'm like, God, that's not what I get out of travel, man. Travel for me is gritty, you know, and it should be gritty. Like it should be hard and it should take you out of your comfort zone and out of your element, you know, and it should like expose you to other cultures and it should be risky. And more importantly, you should think it's risky. You should see it as risky and scary and go anyway. And that's part of the learning process. You know, that's what I get out of travel. That's the itch it scratches. And that's not, you don't get that flying around in first class and staying in five-star hotels. Like, and, but anyway, so I think mm-hmm. dirtbag travel is a little bit, you know, when I think about like the rucksack revolution of the sixties and seventies, you know, that's, I feel like we need that as a world, you know, but anyway, why did I get off on that little soapbox? Um, dirtbag travel, you know, is like, <laughs> that's what I like. I mean, what's I, the irony is now I've got a successful business. Like I have a decent paycheck. Like I can travel that's a lot of ways. Awesome. And I still like you give me a month. I fly to Liberia and buy some cheap little Chinese knockoff and go ride around the, the backwoods of West Africa from an, and sleep on, from an Uber driver suggestion from an Uber driver. Yeah, I'm not out too looking That's for awesome. infinity pools and five star resorts. I could give a shit about that stuff. No, you know? no, I love that. And that you probably had more fun than they do, though. You do. I bet. I mean, certainly my sure. kind of fun. Type, you know that other type of fun. 
I, I, I love that. I love that. And I think that just, you know, is like, I always think like more kids getting out of college and stuff should try this, you know, try this way of travel, you know, like it, 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 they were people like young people or before college or whatever, just like that moment you have before you settle into your career, you know, like when I was a kid, everybody wanted to go to Europe and get the, the, get the train passes and stuff. And now then the lonely planet kind of came along that the lonely planet guidebooks and people started doing, you know, more like interesting destinations. And then more recently it's been like, Oh, people want now they want to go to Peru and they want to go here. I'm like the next evolution of this man, go out, get yourself a bike and get away from the places where the other visitors, the other tourists are staying and get out into the small villages with a tent and a sleeping bag and really meet people and really experiencing the culture. You know, that's no guidebooks, you know, no bus schedules, no pavement. I think oh, that's, yes. I don't know if it, it might be too hardcore for a lot of kids. I don't know, but it's certainly for some people, there's more people out there that should be trying this that just don't even know it's possible. I really believe that. A lot, a lot of that sounds like you're describing the BDRs. Oh yeah. The BDRs you know, are the, the small towns and totally it's like the, definitely training ground for everything right yeah i mean i think there's two versions of this there's the international version and then there's the your own backyard version you know and there there are two sides of the same coin it's a little bit like backpacking like when we say the word backpacking that could mean hey the appalachian trail and the pacific crest trail or it could mean i'm backpacking around southeast asia or i'm backpacking around south america those are the same two things that apply to our sport and you know the bdrs are the pacific crest trail or the appalachian trail and like, that's yeah, so right. much more accessible than this other stuff I'm talking about, which is like, not everybody's going to jump on a plane and fly to Africa and buy a bike. I know that, you know, uh, I like to put in a little plug for it because I think it's really cool. But um, the BDRs are Absolutely. like, they're right there. I mean, it's like so cool. It's such an awesome thing. Like anybody that was out doing ADV and dual sport before the BDR movement, and you would try to plan these cross state trips in a state that you don't live in. And you would lose so much time on dead end roads Mm -hmm. and logging roads and private property and fences. And like, you you know, it was really frustrating experience, you know, and the BDR is like, you can just pop up and and get a BDR route and go have an epic experience. Like, it's so cool. I love the BDR. I've only done about half of them, but it's, it's not even, I probably haven't even done half, Um, but it's like, I'm a huge believer in that. And I think it's been a great thing for the sport, you know? Cause that's like one of the most tricky right. things for people when they first get a bike and they're first starting out. It's like, where do I go? It's like, man, if you hadn't done all the BDRs, there you go. You got like a decade's worth of entertainment ahead of you just right there. Right. You know, without having to Definitely. think. And then you can do all kinds of offshoots and you can find ways to make the trip back. To, you know, if you start, you ride in point A to point B, then how do you get back to point A? I mean, you can kind of branch off from there. Um, a different I'm a big way. believer yeah. in that. Yeah. So I Pete, BDRs. I think, uh, yeah. I think, Listening to you talk, you must have put some of that in the bag that I got when I went to Idaho. Because before I went to Idaho, <laughs> like I was nervous to go to the store alone. You know, I was I was just a little bit, I don't know, paranoid, whatever, like that way. I just didn't like to go anywhere yeah. alone. And since I first threw some stuff in a Moscow Moto bag, I like I can't wait to go somewhere and either alone <laughs> or with buddies, but man you sprinkled some of that in the yeah. bag so i agree with you more kids more people should do it once you get the hook for this you know like there's no going back man it's hard to go back to other kinds of travel 
you know, it triggers something for us, I think, for people, for humans, like it taps into something that's like already there. You know, like we, we're living in this world where we can have almost everything delivered to us, like on a, you know, it's just so we're so comfortable. We've got all the calories we need. We got roofs over our head, you know, and then we got a million people telling us to take less risks and don't be vulnerable and watch out for this and watch out for that. And that's not really what we were genetically programmed for. Like we were genetically programmed 10 thousands of years ago for this completely different environment where there was risk and vulnerability every day. And we had to hunt for our food. And, and, uh, and there's a part of us that, you know, when we tap into that feeling of like moving around, not taking more with us than we can carry and, you know, having a few simple high consequence tasks every day that need to be accomplished, like find food, find water, reach our destination, find a place to sleep. And, and all that other shit at our house and our jobs and our bills and stuff, and we leave all that stuff behind, man, it taps into something deep, you know, and I it's think that's why primal. it feels so right, you know? Yeah, it's primal. That's my and, perspective. And you anyway. get home and, yeah. and look at, you get home and look at all this stuff and you're like, but I just live, I mean, for me, it's 10 days, woohoo, but I just live 10 days off what's on my bike. And you look at all this yeah. crap around and like, Wow, you know, it's, it's freeing. I don't know. I just, I love it. <laughs> I mean, I something funny that I've noticed on on motorcycle trips is like when I'm on a trip, on a motorcycle trip, and I've consolidated my world down to the things I brought with me. I usually there's a few things I brought that I wish I hadn't brought, and I get sort of like I'm like oh, I wish I could ditch this, <laughs> but it's too valuable. And I'm like I'm so I'm, I'm actually like literally trying to have less stuff, and then I get home, and I'm at home for a while. And I'm like, oh gosh, my life would be just more complete if I just had this one thing that I could order on Amazon. Or like, God, I just, I'm like antsy. So I'm like, oh, maybe I should pick up a new sport or I need a new tool or I need a thing. And so it's the complete opposite. You know what I mean? On the motorcycle, I'm like, if I just could get rid of this one thing, everything would be perfect. And then at home, it's always like, if I just had this one other thing, this other toy, this other distraction, you know? Because on the motorcycle, all the stimulation is coming from the movement, from the travel, from the experiences, from the people, from the scenery, from the terrain. And then at home, you don't have that stimulation and you're trying to reach for it from other things, from like food or booze or buying some little doodad that you don't even need or, you know, yeah. uh, because, and that's, I think taps into that genetic programming thing. I mean, we were programmed to move or to live this more this way than the way we do, you know? I don't, I want to get too crazy here, but um, I think of it like unplugging from the matrix when I go out on the bike and. For sure. And live off of it. And then you come home and plug back in. And like you said, oh, I need a new TV or something. Something's not right. Well, what's not right is I'm not on the road <laughs> or off-road. Totally. I know right. it's not a huge leap to picture those pods in the matrix just being our houses and our offices and all the little wires and tubes coming into them. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, I, 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 I hear you, man. What you say. Right. Yeah. So. Man, I'm so excited. Thanks for joining us. I mean, we've got more questions. I'm sure Chappie's got a few, but. Yes, I do. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I know I'm talking a lot. I'm, like, you guys can shut me up. No, you... that's <laughs> no, no, that's no. that's fine. I mean, that's that's what we're here for. So you get All right. get the, the story. You can um, edit out the you can edit out the long winded parts. The um, the first trip you you said that you know how you discovered you know, Moscow, it got the name and whatnot. You went back down with the prototype. Um, I saw in your post on ADV rider, you actually took a prototype with you on uh, this trip that you did this year. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? 
Uh, remind me which prototype on which trip. <laughs> it's been three the, trips, four trips already this year. <laughs> <laughs> well, the the you took it to Africa. The the uh, your gear bag, your new gear bag. Oh, the Moscow Mule. Out. Yeah, I had a few prototypes on that trip. I also yeah. had our gnome. I had our gnome tank bag as well, oh, which is like so cool. Um, and I had other. I had lot. I had lots of prototypey stuff on that trip. But uh, yeah, that Moscow Mule, man, that thing is a trip. Yeah, that our gear bag. You know, we we uh, I'm really excited for that thing, man. It's called the Moscow Mule. That that's what we're calling it, the, the gear bag. But it's basically right. a gear hauler. And like, we're boy, it's a big, complicated, sprawling bag. We got great ambitions for it and uh but it the main deal with it is like it seems like i can never get like you have kind of three scenarios where i use a gear bag you got the trailhead riding you know which is like single track you know which is like like in a couple of months here we'll start on our weekends and after work we'll start yep it's like you know non-street legal bike trails like eight inches wide up in the mountains and there we're we're taking a truck to the trailhead we unload our bikes we go rip around single track come back to the truck take off so that's one version. And then the second version is the like, hey, we're going to Death Valley. We're going to Moab. You know, we're going to ride the, the Colorado BDR. So maybe the bikes, we start out with the bikes in the trailer um, and we're throwing our gear in the back of a pickup truck. We go get to this spot and then we go do like a seven or 10 day trip. Or maybe we even, well, we're not really flying in because we don't do the rental bike thing, but other people might be flying in for a trip like that. But may, mostly we're, we're throwing it in the back of a, throwing all our stuff in an enclosed trailer at the back of a pickup truck and driving there. And then, the third scenario is like these overseas trips, like what I was just doing in Africa, the fly-in trips, you know, where you're kind of, you're not bringing a bike with you. You're going to rent a bike there, buy a bike or something like that. Um, and for me, that's mostly international, but maybe like I was saying earlier, maybe some folks are doing that in Moab or doing that in Death Valley. They're like renting a bike when they get there. So it's kind of the fly-in. So you have the, the trailhead, the drive-in, the fly-in trip. And, uh, and gear haulers play a role in each one of those. And it's always been a challenge for me to like figure out how to transport stuff because like on that fly-in trip version, there you're probably bringing your luggage also like i'm bringing a reckless 80 bound up and stuffed in there which yeah. takes up a bunch of space plus you got all of your right. riding gear you got like helmet boots like all this stuff weighs a lot and takes up a ton of space like tools you know it's i mean like it's amazing how it's much stuff it takes in to pull a bag to find it and that's even a super minimalist trip it's still like 100 pounds a gear it's crazy and the stuff you're wearing you know all the all the different things uh, for a trip like that um and uh, so we wanted to design a gear hauler that can work for all three of those scenarios. And uh, we've come up with a really neat concept for it, you know, which is like a bag that basically splits in half. And so there's two separate bags. So like the bags connect and it, you know how like a, a classic, like uh, rollerboard, you know, it has like a top half and a bottom half and yep. they sort of split apart like that. And they kind of like fold. Mm -hmm. But then on this bag, you can separate the top half from the bottom half and each becomes a separate bag, which then, can be expanded to take up the full 62 linear inches of the airline check baggage. So you can, you can check them as two, the two separate bags you get free on an international flight and they'll use every inch of the space. So you're not like, Oh, this one is only, you know, 45 linear inches. Whereas this one's 62, you're using a full 62 on both. And, uh, or it can be like consolidated down. So when you're just running it at the gearhead or at the, at the trailhead, you just take the top half off and that can stay in your, garage and just have the shit that you're not bringing you know that you don't need for your trail ride but then when you go to like to moab you can pack your clothes in there and all kinds of other stuff so like it basically and then it has a bunch of insert bags like it has a helmet insert bag and like two or three kind of packing cubes and then a bag for like uh, fluids and 
one of them doubles as a changing mat. And all these little insert bags have have dual purpose. So they can work integrated with the gear hauler, or they can be removed and used on their own. Like for the packing cubes can come with you on the trip. If it's a multi-day trip, you might stuff those in your backcountry duffel to keep your clothes separate and or put your electronics in one or something like that. And it also means if you're still pushing the capacity of the gear hauler, then you can take the helmet bag out, set that aside and use that spot for clothing or for gear or something like that. So it basically is just like hugely modular, you know, it comes with these five or six insert oh, bags, man. it splits into two. So when it's like super minimalist con- configuration, you just roll around the bottom half and that's what you take to the trailhead. But you have all these other kind of options for like expanding or contracting the, the capacity. Um, it's really that neat. Awesome. I, I, yeah, I love it. And it's so complicated. I thought we thought we always joke that the first prototype you get of something like when it shows up in the factory, we call it the box of disappointments because your expectations are so high. You have this vision of what it's going to be like. And then you, everybody's excited and you're like, oh, we got it. And you take it in there and you cut it open and you pull it out. And you're like, that's not what we made, you know? And then it's, it's this slog to get to like something that actually represents your original vision. And incredibly, so we were sure that this one was going to be disappointing. And it, instead, I mean, it's still quite simple, keep in mind, but instead we open it up and we were like, damn, this is like about right. Like there's a, it's like more right than wrong. And uh, it's so much so that, you know, a couple of weeks later, I was able to take it to Africa and check it and take it on, you know, 42 hour flight to get over there with a bunch of connections and customs. And, you know, it was uh, like, that's one of the keys is the two, the two pieces. Like when you are, you know, a lot of times you have to get through customs in a country. So you have to go get your check bag, go through customs, put it back on the conveyor, keep going. And then you get to your destination, you get off the plane and it's like, you're in some crazy country and it's like chaos. People are trying to grab your bags. Oh, taxi, taxi, let me help you with this or that. And you can just like consolidate everything together. No, I don't need any help. I'm good. You know, you're rolling your own stuff. You're moving your own luggage. And it totally worked. You know, it was great. Really awesome. I'm really excited for it. That's not, yeah, keep an eye that's out not that. bad for a bag of disappointment this time. That's pretty good. No. Yeah. yeah I, that, I was thoroughly yeah. impressed with, with your explanation and the pictures you put up. I mean, I, I do uh vintage motocross, so I've got a gear bag that I take with me. You know, that holds the helmet and all that gear and stuff. And I saw yours and it's like, holy crap. And that's like, not only for like motorcycle travel, that, that could be used for any trip where you needed luggage. I mean, Oh, for sure. Definitely. Anytime you need like a big roller bag to check and it's engineered for, for checked luggage, luggage sizes, you know, which is key. I, I mean, I could literally talk years off about this thing, but anyway, the, the, it's like I, I, for a P1, I mean, it looks very simple. You know, pictures you saw and stuff, like it's quite plain and black fabrics and like substitute everything. But like the fact that it works at all for P1 is a miracle. <laughs> so uh, we're on awesome. a, good, a good track. Yeah. I think we got a good team working on it and a good factory. And that also speaks to uh, how, how you develop your gear. You don't just come up with an idea and that's, that's what we're going with. You guys get a sample and you go through several iterations before it ever hits the market. Oh, we do. And we, we put it out there. Do we get a lot of feedback on adventure at advrider.com? You know, we're really active on there. And so we put out these pictures and then people chime in with their input and then all that input gets incorporated into the design process. So it's not this like closed door thing where it's like just us and we're all doing all this in secret. And then like we have some big marketing launch where we show everybody the result of our work. Like, people are participating in the development process as we go. In fact, that reminds me, I needed to get on ADV Rider and see if there's been any feedback 
because I posted that right before I left for the Desert 100. So there's probably some feedback already, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, I think there was quite a bit of feedback there. Yeah, I, mean, I, I would like for, to thank you for yeah. finding or getting me into the ADV ride. I didn't know about that until uh, I saw it in your blog post. The forum. Yeah, that's a powerful resource. Yeah, that that's pretty awesome. Yeah, I'm a fan. Yeah, it's huge. Okay, it's huge. Okay. It's one of the largest enthusiast forums down. on the whole internet. What was that? <laughs> Finally, my nerves calmed down. <laughs> Woohoo, thanks. No, um, <laughs> I just wanted, before I forget, there was a couple questions some people asked for you, Pete. And oh, one yeah, of them was, course. will Moscow Moto come out with OEM brackets? In other words... I have a 19 BMW 1250 GSA with OEM luggage racks for hard panniers. Basically, they want to use your panniers. Oh, I wonder if they're talking about, uh, did he say GS Adventure or GS? GS Adventure. GSA. Yeah. Yeah. GSA. I mean, our our brackets, oh, I think I know what he's talking about. He's talking about the the fact that you got to use one of our adapters. Because there's two questions that that could be interpreted as, but since he has a GSA, I think he's talking about something that has basically the same back as the uh, OEM uh, hard panniers that just like on. Yeah, he's running the, the hard, oh, hard. Yeah, yeah. Uh, gotcha. And so the way the OEM system works is it has these little tabs, like it sort of slides onto these little tabs, and um, we're totally working on a system right now uh, that you know we actually. Uh, came up with the original concept a couple of years ago, and then it's just been on the back burner and we've just moved it back to the front burner a few months ago. So like, yeah, we want to do that. Uh, we're totally messing with it. We have a neat, really neat concept um, for a lash system, cool. like an injection molded lash system that would like basically click into those same little tabs that the OEM panniers click into and wouldn't require you. Would, so you wouldn't use the frame and wedge on the backcountry 35. Those would come off and then we'd have this like other back that kind of clicks on there and it would slide in. Um, very similar, but it, nice. we wouldn't use that same latch that the um, that the OEMs use. We use our own latch, different kind of latch, something simpler. Awesome, yeah. Because I like to throw away the OEM and buy Moscow. I love to do that. <laughs> I'd like to also add to for to answer Jason's comment. If uh, he uses the OEM luggage for his BMW, he could always get a Rackless eighty or a Rackless forty. Those go on in minutes. Yeah, for sure. A lot of people do that. I, I put mine on the, I've got a 850 GS and I've got a 250L Honda and it fits on both of those. So, yeah, that's a great solution nice, yeah. in the meantime, Jason. But also, we are working, I, if I'm understanding the question correctly, we are working on something like that. It's going to be a while. Like, it's not going to be tomorrow, but it's like totally on the, on the design table right now. It's on the radar. Yep. And then, uh, Harris, Harris, Steve had one. You see that, Chappie? Yes. Uh, yes. Harrison Steve says, I'd love to hear these two talk. Well, they, we thought Ash. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So he said, uh, he'd love to hear you talk about creating and sustaining a corporate culture. It seems like a great place to work. The team seems to love what they do. How did they make it so? And how do they keep it going as they grow? Like, I think he's uh, referencing yeah. what you talked about, like, everybody's involved in like the Moscow rides Baja trip. Yeah. Baja <laughs> yeah. trip. I mean, I, I would love to uh, answer that question with like, Oh, we did some, 
I think I, I think Moscow is a really fun place to work, and everybody there gets along really well. And you know, we ride together, we hang out outside of work together, and we managed to preserve that. Getting to our current size, like it hasn't gotten diluted at all. It's still just as awesome as it was when there were two or three of us. Um, I would love to say that we did that following some book or some game plan or some flowchart or something like that, but like we totally didn't. You know, uh, we have tried to hire people that require very little management. In other words, they're self-governing, so to speak. And and on, and it, when we do get someone who isn't like that, it usually doesn't work out very well. But uh, when we do get people like that, we see how they are and they see what we're doing in creating a company that rewards that. And so we're, we it clicks very well. You know what I mean? Because if you're that type of person, it sucks being in a company where someone's leaning over your shoulder all the time. And so we're not that kind of company. You know, we treat right. our the way we run the company the same as we treat a motorcycle trip, you know? Like we're all doing our own thing and we're all riding our own ride in the same direction. And like it, I think it's really important to like, like when I do a job, like I want to be told what an objective is, but not really how to do it. I want to bring my own special experiences and talents to the solution. That's like something that, and then when it's a solution, it's going to be a Pete solution. You know what I mean? Like it'll have my little mark on it. And I want that also from our team. Like when we don't, I don't, we don't have a bunch of standard operating procedures and a bunch of scripts they're supposed to read when they talk to a customer or anything like that. Like we, each thing that we do bears the mark of the person that did it. You know what I mean? Like they've got their own mark on it. Like if you call in to our customer service department, the interaction you're going to have is a real human interaction with the person that you're talking to. And you're going to get the interaction with that person, not this like standard generic Moscow interaction. You know what I mean? Right. So. It's not the matrix. Yeah. And we spent a lot of time, like, you know, if you were to come here and observe our office culture, or the way we do things, like there's a, a lot of laughing and a lot of bullshitting and a lot of talk, telling stories and talking about bikes that happens. And I think you might, somebody might say, oh, that's really inefficient or, you know, that's not a good use of time. But what it does do is mean that everybody's not super siloed. So like when we need to sprint, like when we need to accomplish something, when we need to do something complicated, Everybody has a really thorough understanding, you know, not only of their relationship with each other person in the company, but also each person's relationship with each other person in the company. Like we have, it's like a web, you know, and so things can happen very quickly and efficiently without uh, sort of like people saying, oh, that's not in my bailiwick or whatever. Um, But I think, you know, we're, I don't know if that answers the question about how we, how we do it. I, I think it does. I mean, I, so. I, I worked for a company not that long ago that uh, I, I had that same situation, you know, with the people, uh, everybody, we had fun. We all wanted to go to work. Nobody called in sick unless, you know, they were sick because they really couldn't make it. Everybody wanted to be there. And if there was a crunch that everybody needed to work a little bit harder or give a little bit extra work a little bit late. Nobody ever complained and everybody always stayed. Yeah. You know, because we loved, we loved our job and it sounds like everybody you have there loves their job. They want to come to work because it's a fun, uh, they enjoy it. And yeah, it's just, it's more like a family than a, than a job. We have that. And it's not, and I don't want to make it sound like we don't have high expectations. We do have very high expectations. Like this only works when everybody is really good at their job and really committed to it, it only works. Like if you get someone coming in who wants to take advantage of the culture, 
then that's like really insidious. You know what I mean? And so you got to deal with that. And that person's got to go, you know, and you, so yep. like it only works when, when you, you know, the 90% of it is who who's on the team and who's not, you know what I mean? And like yes. making sure that you're bringing in people that are like really, really good at what they do fit with the culture, um, self-governing. And, you know, I think another thing is like, we don't put, we have, we have kind of an internal policy of having as, as little in the way of s- systems and processes as we need. So in other words, as you grow, you got to have some level of systems and processes inside your company, because otherwise it starts to get really cluttered and fall apart and everybody blames each other. And that, that actually can be quite poisonous for the culture. Like a lot of times when two people are upset with each other, it's actually a broken process, you know? So it's not, I'm not saying you go totally, it's not anarchy, you know what I mean? But what we don't want to do is layer, you know, this, cause there's, there's this like, thing of like dehumanizing aspect to companies and corporations and i understand it like when you get to a certain scale you can't really have people you have to have like boxes with numbers on them on an org chart you know what i mean and they all and the way they interact with each other have to be spelled out you just can't administer an organization of a certain size without that but we're not that size you know we're a different animal we're a creative company and so uh so we, that's the way, you know, we look at it a little bit differently and we're not trying to be a huge corporation at all. In fact, we specifically don't want that. All of our ambitions are measured in product development. They're not measured in, in revenue or size or scale or value. You know, it's measured in product that's development. Awesome. I'm going to, I'm going to sum that up with my Cody speak for, for the layman. Okay. <laughs> what I, what I saw there is, is uh, self-starters, but you allow as a culture, people to get their creative, um, like you said, mark on there. Uh, I was just talking with my buddy about that. Like I have to have some creative outlet in any job or function that I do to make me feel satisfied. And it seems like you encourage people as long as they get the job done, it's a Pete job with his signature or an Ash or, you know, Spencer. And uh, so they get to, they get to still be themselves, but you all go and accomplish the goal. Yeah. It's a, it's a lot like being on a motorcycle trip together, man, with your buds, you know, some one guy's person's good at navigation. One person knows how to fix a bike when it has a problem. One cook. One person's been there before. One person's got some riding tips, you know? Right. One's got good food. <laughs> yeah. One. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> totally. Yeah. People. Yeah. I think I, there's a lot of analogies there and you don't really know what's around the next bend. None of you, you know, ultimately, even if you've right. been there before, anything could happen. You know, it's a, there's a lot of analogies between running a business like this and, and being on a motorcycle trip. That's awesome. Wow. So you got a lot of experience. Yeah. You're doing awesome. And we appreciate it very yes. much. Oh, thanks, man. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate you guys, you know, I mean, all the support and stuff. Like, I feel like Moscow is like a community project more than a company, you know. And that's probably why I was drawn to it other than it's badass bags. Helped me get through my first trip. Now I don't want any <laughs> other bag on my bike. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. I appreciate that, man. But well, we're trying hard. Keep making them better. Cody, that was an awesome interview. Getting to know more about Pete from Moscow Moto. That was, was it uh, really? It, it was. I, I, I don't really remember. enjoyed I, that. I felt like I was floating a whole freaking time. <laughs> I was on cloud nine. That was so cool, dude. Well, it was kind of funny because, you know, I said he was like the motor motorcycle rock star and he was like, come on. Yeah. And I was like, I, no, really, you fucking are like my rock star for the 
for the moto world. It's awesome. Yeah, he does. He does a lot, and um, I, I hope we showcase with the questions enough of how much testing Moscow does. Uh, unless you follow their blogs and read the blogs and follow them on Instagram and and stuff like that, you don't understand that every person at Moscow rides a motorcycle. They're their whole company they have went these, to Baja. Their whole yeah, but, company. But they have these ideas because they are riders like we are. So the gear, um, you know, I, I didn't tell my story about the tank bag. I, I know I've told it here on the podcast that I went from this uh, huge 20 liters or 30 Jump liter. Door. Yeah tank bag and everything that I had in there it was hard to find it didn't know where it was to you finally convinced me of the Nomax the thought was the Nomax it, it, it's easier to get my gas in it's easier to take it from one bike to another I can take it off of my BMW and put it on my Honda which is a dual sport so I'm taking it from an 850 adventure bike and putting it on a dual sport yeah. And it just clip, clip, done. And it's because a backpack. Because you just get it. Yeah, just get another harness. Yes. And the backpack, when you're wearing it as a backpack, you can take the beaver tail and put it through your chin bar, and it'll hold your helmet on your back so you don't have to carry that. It's just there's so yeah. many. And I've had one for three years, and I didn't know that part about the helmet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, so thank you, Chappie. <laughs> I discovered that somehow, somewhere. But it, it, more to my point, uh, you know, I took everything that was in that huge tank bag and everything that I needed fits in the Nomax. It's smaller. It's lower profile. It's easier on and off the bike. It's easier to get to the gas. And, and you know. there's pockets. There's pockets. So I know where it is. I don't have to go searching and rummaging through and pulling things out to get to certain things. Yeah. That's how I lose keys, you know, when you empty out the whole damn freaking tank bag that has no pockets. And then right. something you need, like one of those don't lose this items. Yeah, Went all the way down into the bottom. Yep. <laughs> Got all the way in. Yes. It's, it's organized and it's because they do what we do. So they design the products for the uses. It's it's easier. It's not somebody sitting behind a chair, you know, behind a desk saying, well, I think this will be good. You know, these are people yeah. that are riding bikes like we do coming up with the ideas. Crap. Yeah, they depend absolutely. On it just like we do. And they so. test it for, you know, a couple of seasons before it actually hits the market. So that was really awesome. I am super stoked about the, the mule though. That, that seems like, uh, a great product. He was super stoked too. I love that he, yes. he just opened right up about it. That was awesome, man. What a cool, what a cool guest. What a cool guy, cool guest, cool gear. Can't say enough. I do want to uh, throw this in there though, before I forget, because I was so enamored and not knowing where the fuck I was. Um, excuse my language. <laughs> I said Dad. that I would not like any other bag on my bike. And that is a lie because I do on top of my Moscow Moto stuff, I rock the Mototomic 40-liter dry bag. So I just couldn't remember that at the moment when Pete was in the room. And uh, so sorry, Dan, but I'm trying to fix that now. 
I knew you were thinking it. I thought it too, but. Well, I was kind of trying to get there when I was talking about, you know, how the, the customer service and I ended up, you know, cause I, I also wanted to ask them about how COVID like impacted, but you know, the stories just kept coming and they were so interesting. It just led into different areas, but uh, talking with him off the air, um, he's open to returning uh, with Ash or even other people from Moscow Moto to talk about different aspects of the company or some of the the travels that they do because they they go on at least one, if not more, retreats. You know, company retreats a year. Yeah, maybe I'd have kept my job if mine had motorcycle camping retreats. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, well, I had so many of those with squads uh, that we Your ended up, boss was to blame. My boss was me, and we had many <laughs> retreats, me and Squatch, and that was the problem because my daughter said, Hey, Squatch, uh, you know, we're starting to get married and have a family. You're going to need a fucking job, and Dad just wants to ride all the time. <laughs> <laughs> do not be like my father no <laughs> yes um yeah so i when i bought my reckless 80 the manufacturer had made a mistake and did not ship enough uh was it stingers so there was different options they didn't have the the normal stinger so you could choose the smaller one or a bigger one and it depending on prices, but because I have my Mototomic uh, 40 liter and I like the, the top roll yeah, instead awesome. of the side load. So the color. Um, you can be seen. Yes. Uh, my thought was, you know, I got that 40 liter. If I only need to carry 20 liters, I can roll it down smaller and the beaver tail will hold it. I love that beaver tail. It's so cool. But I ended up saving a, a few bucks on it. So thanks to COVID um, and Mototomic. Yes. Yes. And, and we're still giving you the rest of the setup. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it worked out in my favor, I think. Uh, but speaking of gear and uh, Mototomic, I got my t shirts. Uh, I, I, see I love that. them. I got my. Yeah, For a second, when I looked at your shirt, I thought way pride was in the house or no the, uh, the uh witness protection person the witness protection guy yeah <laughs> so we had a couple of people post in uh discord that um you know they're they're basically saying that uh, what we've been preaching about mototomic is true they love their gas can hoodie and it, it truly is i think it was uh one of the bearded pigs uh i can't remember which one said that um it truly is like putting on a warm hug <laughs> it is i'm telling you that's the only way i can describe I mean, we, it we we don't lie we don't talk about stuff unless we truly believe we don't make it. shit up man it either happens yeah. or it doesn't <laughs> like uh moscow is uh our choice of luggage because of the quality uh, not saying that there aren't other good quality companies out there that they stand behind their product. And after hearing Pete talk, I hope uh, uh, more people understand, you know, that this small company, they're, they're for real. You know, what's so cool. He made a way of life. Like he saw how he wanted his life to be. He found a way to help us have good gear mm. and people have a cool job 
writing and a community. I just, man, that's cool to me that he like, I don't know if he totally planned that or if it. No, he said it just keeps happening. They keep finding people that how to fill the job and they all ride motorcycles. So it's like, I mean, you need an IT tech. I mean, your chances of finding an IT tech in a small town that rides a motorcycle and rides (laughs) the type of motorcycling that you do too, because they all ride ADV style. It's not like one guy's on a Harley and one guy's, you know. (laughs) Yeah, they're going off road. You know, I just kept the whole time he was telling the stories and stuff, especially about the company. I kept one thing kept coming to my mind and it was just that damn old show if you build it they will come you know <sighs> the field of dreams yeah. or whatever but man that was definitely a bucket list moment for me too uh the next gear that we would like to let everybody know about is uh moto camp nerd he is the moto only nerd. the well as of right now he is the only motorcycle specialty camping store that's why he's called moto camp nerd but moto camp nerds got it locked down and you can save money yes uh both with moto atomic and moto camp nerd if you use the discount code throttled adv you can save on your purchase but uh moto camp nerd all the tents and sleeping bags and everything are small packing quality and thought of for the motorcycle traveler yep if you want to try camping or you're into camping and you're looking to upgrade your gear that's the place you want to go his prices are reasonable uh if not better than uh some of the bigger chain stores as well yep and the gear is quality yes well yes he doesn't carry inferior stuff he carries quality and uh, we got the B-Moto, the Bootiche.com. Hard to spell, quality work. Yes, if you need some uh, performance modifications to your off-road motorcycle, uh, suspension work, you need some, what was it, Cerakoting on your parts, they on can do parts, it. On your parts, they can do that. Yes. What was it they said? Uh, I heard him say, be ready, be fast, B-Moto. Or something like that. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I haven't heard that. Be ready, be fast, be moto. Yeah. That's pretty stick. cool. They will be appearing here on the podcast very soon. And we will yeah, get the soon. details of Cody's motor. Oh, God. Yeah, that's going to be a fun one. Because uh, <laughs> I don't know uh, what you I guys, do to it. I honestly If don't you guys know, think Cody is me. funny, uh, where do you get a load of Paco Pete? <laughs> You mean Paco Bean? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Only Discord gets that, I guess. But Yes, but that's okay. So, yes, if you would like to uh, help support the podcast, visit one of these fine establishments and not only you know use the discount code, but let them know that uh, you heard about it here on the podcast. That helps us. That helps them. And uh, don't forget to rate us on your favorite place if you can, too. Yes. Apple Music, whatever. I, I don't I don't know how it all goes, but you can Yeah, Apple, Spotify that you can leave ratings, you can leave reviews. That helps others find the podcast because by you leaving a rating, uh it shows it to other people. 
And if you just want to flip us off as you're rating, then you can take a picture of you flipping us off. Put it on Discord when you join Discord. We'll see it. Yes. Yeah, if you want to join the community and talk to me and Cody, leave us messages and stuff like that. YouTube, you can do that right on the videos, but here you really can't. So uh, we created Discord. So it's a little community. The people talk around in there, and there's a lot of cool stuff in there. Yeah. Come join us. There's links down in the description uh, to Moscow Moto, Mototomic, B-Moto, to coffee. Before we sign off, I don't know if you'd listen. If you do, it's in secret, Johnny. And I love you, Johnny Mac. You know I do. But ha, 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 Johnny, Pete was just on the podcast. It only took three years. <laughs> We've only been doing it a little over a year, though. But the vision was there. <laughs> yeah. And you know what? It actually only took two months because we sent yeah. we sent out an email, and the reason it took so long was because for the whole month of February they were in you know Africa, and he wanted to make sure that we had a good quality podcast, so he didn't want to do it from over there. He didn't know he had to disinvite me to do that, but <laughs> we didn't tell him that part. Right. No. Next time. Next time. Next time he'll bring Ash. So thank you all for listening. And until next time. Make sure you don't buy my Moscow Motor stuff. Okay? Because supply and demand. And I demand supply. That was braptastic, okay? <laughs>